The subject today would be God's compassionate people on mission with God's inerrant gospel. And so we're going to look at the book of Luke. Here's my sermon outline. The book of Luke, and we'll dip into the book of Acts, the gospel beginning and continuing. And then we'll see God's people on mission. First, we're going to start, as the other gentlemen have started over the past two weeks, just with the author of the book of Luke. The name of my middle child, first boy, Luke, was after this, the gospel of Luke. And Luke, by trade, was a doctor. We know that in Colossians 4, 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Damas. And so I wonder if Paul brought him along just on those missionary trips. He was kind of like the doctor that is embedded in the armies. He goes on these mission trips to help, help those who are ailing. Uh, he was a doctor, but he was also a historian. Because he had access to uh, documents, he became a, a known and well, uh, well-documented historian. He was careful in his composition of his letter. We'll see that in a minute when we look at the introduction. And it gives me something to think about. He, he, he took the secular job he was in and he used it for the glory of God. That would be one application, uh, just a high level application. I mean, I'm an accountant by first degree. And so, you know, numbers is my favorite book, right? <laughs> took some of you a while. <laughs> so in light of what Ben said last week, can I give you some new J's from the gospel of Luke? Just when it comes to numbers, did you know that Luke and Acts, so I say Luke, meaning Luke and Acts, make up 2,030 verses of the 7,900 verses. Paul in his 13 letters makes up 2,032. So if you look at it that way, they're both approximately 26% of the New Testament, meaning if you wanted to get a good handle on your New Testament, read Luke and Acts. One-fourth of your New Testament right there. But if you look at it per words, remember a couple weeks ago, Bradley said that Luke was long-winded. If we look at it in words, Luke has 35,117 words in Luke and Acts. Paul in his 13 letters, 32,407. I'm going to count it, right? That means Luke literally, if we go word for word, wrote 25% more than Paul. We often attest that Paul is the writer of most of the New Testament, if you go word for word, it is Dr. Luke. Yes, he was long-winded, some say, but he had a lot of good things to say. And we know that he used his profession to further the gospel. That was his context. But he was also convicted. And I think of today of men and women using their profession to further the gospel. You, you see this. Not only was Luke a doctor and a historian, he was an apologist. And you see this today. You see um, Lee Strobel, who was a journalist writing Case for Christ. Uh, There's a gentleman who was a detective that wrote Cold Case Christianity. A philosopher wrote Reasonable Faith. And an MD wrote A Doctor at Calvary. And so what these men are doing today in the apologetics realm is no different than what Luke's doing way back when in the 80s, 60s, when he wrote. He was a historian, he was a physician, he was an apologist, but more than anything, he was a theologian. And we are all theologians, every one of us. Some of us, I put this in quotes, so don't go there, because I'm still learning. By degree, trade, whatever, we're professional theologians. I have a master's degree in theology, I paid for it, right? That's what I took classes, paid the money, they gave me a degree. Some of us are amateur theologians. All of us are theologians. And even the professionals can be sloppy. So we're all theologians to some degree. It's whether we are careful. Are we careful like Luke? Or are we sloppy? In Luke, you're going to see there are many things that he teaches on, but two of the biggest are prayer and the Holy Spirit. Prayer and the Holy Spirit. If you take the word prayer, and so there are more than 131 verses in the Bible on praying, so don't don't go there, but if you take that word in quotes, in the Bible, it's 131 verses, 23 times in the New Testament, 17 in Luke and Acts, 17 in Luke and Acts. Luke has a lot to say on prayer in his gospel and the history in Acts. And if you look at the Holy Spirit, 550 times in the Bible, 162 times in the New Testament. Of that, 35 times in Luke, 68 in Acts. 
And so you get almost twice as many presentations. Some have called the Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because if you want a theology of the Holy Spirit, you don't touch the book of Acts, you have missed quite a bit of information. And so Luke wants us to see, what you could take from that is he wants us to see we are dependent. We are dependent. We must be a praying people and we are empowered. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so if you look at his works, if you take there, now if I were, if they would have called me, way back when, when they were putting together the Bible, and they said, Judd, how would you lay out the Gospels? I would say, thanks for asking. First, I would put John first, right? It's the one we appeal to, Jesus, as, as the divine Son of God. And then I would, I would put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Acts to follow. So in my Western linear mind, I could read Luke and then go, but they didn't call me. They didn't ask. And so we have Luke separated by John, and then you get Acts. But if you look at his work, it's a two-volume work. It's one in the same work. That's why I had Mike Pittman read the introductions to Acts when he said, O Theophilus, in my first compilation, what I brought to you. And so we, when you think of Luke, think of Luke and Acts together. Uh, it would be like you thinking in the Old Testament, thinking of um, the Samuels together, First and Second Samuel. You would think of those together. Think of Luke and Acts together. And so what we're going to look at now is his introduction. We're going to look, then sweep through the body, and then we're going to concentrate on his conclusion. In Luke's introduction, it is one sentence. It's four verses in the English. It's one sentence in the Greek, similar to Paul in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It's one long sentence. Uh, Here we learn two things. The history of our faith for the certainty of our faith. Inasmuch as many... A lot of people like to try to tear down the scriptures as if it's an old ancient document that not really anyone cared about. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative. It's a story. They tell stories because stories stick of the things that have been accomplished among us. This is the historical events. Many have undertaken this. If you were to go back and you were to look at the documents, I could throw up fancy charts and show you this, but if you were to look at Old Testament documents, you would see uh, of the many, there are thousands of old documents of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. In the New Testament, probably 25,000 compared to the Republic, right? Plato's Republic, of which governments were built on, there's hundreds of thousands versus hundreds. And so Luke, the doctor, historian, apologist, theologian, says many have undertaken to do this. Verse 2, just as those who were for the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And so this narratives that some were writing delivered them. And so we have these historical theological events, these ministers of the word delivered them to the people. These witnesses, that they testified to what they saw. Luke is looking back and gathering information from them and saying in verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. Luke was careful. He, he was educated. He read the documents. He was reading them and under the power of the Holy Spirit formed what we have as the gospel of Luke. And he was patient. He had followed things closely for some time past. He wasn't rushing into this. He wanted to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus. Some say that is this the beloved of God is Luke writing to many people? I think based on his phrase, most excellent Theophilus, he's writing to a real person. He's not writing to a general, the beloved of God, because he uses that phrase, most excellent, two times in Acts, to address Felix and to address Festus. So I think here he's writing to someone of Roman descent, and he wants to let them know something. And here's what he does in verse 4. That you, Theophilus, may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. You've been taught certain things, but I want you to have certainty of these things, so I'm going to compile an account, careful as it is, for you. I was reading over this this morning, and it hit me. That's, that's why I read books on apologetics. I don't read books on apologetics uh, because I'm unconvinced and I'm still, still wondering about this thing called Christianity, but I read it because it strengthens my faith. It helps me know the certainty of the things I've been taught. 
And so we see these historical events. We see these historical theological events witnessed and delivered. We see these historical theological events researched and written for a reason. So that the believer may be comforted. If I were going to give us an application just based on those four verses, it's this. Number one, we have the responsibility to know our history. Do you know your history? Do you know the history of the Christian church? Do you know the history well enough so when something comes up in current times, you're like, no big deal. We're not going to go there. That's just an old heresy from such and such a time because you know for certain because you know your history. And are you taking that? Here's your second application. Are you taking that responsibility and are you passing it on to the next generation? Bradley talked a couple weeks ago about discipleship. Are we training the next generation with such information? That's why, and she's doing it right now. It gives me great joy. She's down here taking copious notes because if I've helped one person out, I know she is because she's taking notes and she'll take those notes with her to CSU. Go teach some little girls about Luke. Luke taught Theophilus. Paul taught Timothy. We teach our kids and those younger in the faith. We need to know our Bible. We need to know that not just for knowledge's sake, but that we can carry it on to the next generation. Dan Wallace summarizes it best like this. Luke gives us carefully researched data on the life of Jesus to comfort the believer. That's good. Luke carefully researched the data on the life of Jesus to comfort the believer. So here's an outline of Luke. It's similar to the other synoptic gospels, but we get the actual Jesus in 1.5 through 2.52. We get the actual Jesus. Some say, oh, well, there's this Jesus of history, this guy that kind of lived. He was a hippie dude. And then there's this Christ of faith. And so they're, they're separate. No, Luke takes pain to show you this is an actual human being that actually lived more. And you can read this in medical accounts of Jesus's life. More of his physical life is recorded in Luke. This is an actual person. He is the God man who lived. And then there's the activity of Jesus in his words, in his works, through his walk, through his talk. We'll look at that in a minute. And then the aim of Jesus. And so we see this actual Jesus in Luke 2.52 summarized for us well by Luke when he says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And it was one of those times I remember in a, in a young single study, I was teaching some men and they were saying, what's a good verse for me uh, to memorize? And I said, go memorize Luke 2.52. Jesus increased in wisdom. He, intellectually, he was, he was growing in his understanding. Though he'd known it all, it said he, he grew in wisdom and he was asking questions at the temple and learning. And in stature, that means physically he grew up. And in favor with God, spiritually, he was pleasing to his father three times. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. pleased. And he was growing in favor with man socially. I said, that is a great verse. If you want to, you want to, not it's the only verse you need to know, but if you want a verse to kind of, where are you? Are you growing in these things? Jesus actually lived and he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But his aim was this, Luke nine fifty one, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus understood. And again, I can't wait to get to heaven just to go, okay, can you, can we go back? Can you replay this? Like, what was the conversation like? When it says the father sent the son, he did not see equality with God, something to be grasped, but he, but he emptied himself, says Paul in Philippians. He says, I'm going. And so when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that he knew what he was headed into. He had an aim in life and he stuck to it. He knew his purpose. He set his face to Jerusalem. That is, as Daryl Box says, the turning point in the Gospel of Luke. 1 1 through 9 50 gives you that first half of the actual Jesus and the activity of Jesus, and then it turns there. He set his face. He was determined. I must go and fulfill what I was supposed to do. And in between there, you get this activity of Jesus. And what I wanted to point out to you is in the synoptic gospels, you often get the same accounts and it's wonderful to to put them together. And we did it a couple of Easter's ago. We actually went through the gospels and we laid them out. We didn't read through every passage. Um, You guys, I mean, we could, 
that would be awesome. But we, we just had charts to show this is where these lined up. But there are things that are unique to the gospel of Luke. And I wanted to talk through some of those today. Maybe you'll be encouraged at these old, old stories, the story of the good Samaritan. Oh, I remember, I remember, I bet you you remember on the way home from missions class that one day after I had taken Dr. Young, I was just talking. I couldn't stop talking. We got in the car and Ashley and I were driving home and I'm just like, I've got to tell you about the Good Samaritan. I just, because Dr. Mark Young, who's now the president of Denver Seminary, showed us the Good Samaritan and he unpacked it. And he showed how the Levite and the priest walked on the opposite side of the road. Actually, the, Le- the, the priest walked on the opposite side of the road. The Levite came up, at least came to the place as it said, but then he moved on the side of the road because they were so, so caught up in their religion. Don't miss this. They were so caught up in their religion, they were afraid to get dirty and help this dying man. But the Samaritan says he not only came to the place, but he took care of him. And then he put him on his donkey and took him to an inn and he paid for it. He said, if he needs anything else, I'll be back. Jesus used that to say, which one shows mercy? Which one is the good neighbor? Are we there helping those in need? And then there's the, I had to change this because I didn't want to confuse people with words like uh, importunate or impudence, but that is what the word is, the persistent friend in Luke 2. And and I think about this sometimes and I think this is what it means to have childlike faith because I, I get it. Sometimes I love them and they just ask questions over and over and over and over, but that's childlike faith. And that is what this, if you go back to those, that's what this persistent friend is in Luke 11, that he went right after Jesus had taught on prayer and he told this parable of the persistent friend who would not stop until the guy had to get up. I and my family are sleeping. And Jesus said, this is the persistence you need in your prayer. And then there's the classic, the prodigal sons. You may have been taught it was the prodigal son, but if you think about it, it's really the sons. It's really about two people. One, this one has, I hold dear to my heart. This is, this is the story that I share. If somebody says, share your testimony. I was that guy. I went and literally, she can attest to it. She's sitting here. I squandered my father's wealth on loose living. This is the NASB. But somewhere in that wandering, just like in the parable, by God's grace and for his glory, as it says in the parable, I came to my senses. And I wanted to return home and I just wanted to be the dutiful. I'm just going to go do this and I'm just going to follow religion. I'm going to basically work my way into heaven. And it says in that parable, the father, shameless, pulls up his robe and he runs son comes. He says, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. And he couldn't even get out that I wanted to work. Father said, no problem. You come back in here, get him the robe, get him the ring. We're going to have us a little fiesta. We're going to celebrate because my son was lost. Now he's found. It's good. It's a good story. Then the older son who'd been dutiful, the religious son, have I not always been here with you? You see it. He needed the father just as much as the wandering son. Don't be a dutiful Christian, beloved. Not in the way of the prodigal sons where you just go through the motion and there's no heart and you get angry at God because he's lavish with his grace. And then there's the unrighteous judge and the persistent widow. Same thing, much like that persistent friend She's shameless. She went day after day to this judge and she just kept saying, give me justice, give me justice. And this judge who says, I neither fear God nor care for man. Would you just get her what she wants so she gets off my back? And the comparison is, oh, God is not like the unrighteous judge. He's far greater and far better. But this widow was persistent. And it says at the end of that parable, God who's better than this judge, but will he find faith? Will he find persistent Christians on earth? And finally, when it comes to humility, the Pharisee and the publican, 
the Pharisee stands up and basically gives his resume. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I tithe of everything. If you remember the story, the tax collector says, wouldn't even raise his eyes and he beats his chest and he says, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Jesus says, which one went down to his house justified? So just from those stories, we need to see that we need to be the most loving people in the world. We need to be the most persistent people in the world. We need to understand grace, that God is lavished with his grace and you're never too far to come back to God because you're not more powerful than God. God's not up there going, oh man, I wish I could save him, but he just kind of, he's outside my reach. Oh man. And we need to be persistent in our pursuit of justice and prayer that God finds faith on earth and we need to be humble. We don't need to give our resume. We need to be humble. And then there's unique, uh, those are the parables. Then there's unique passages. More, more than anything, you get the infancy narratives. In Matthew, you get the genealogy and then a quick birth narrative, and then you move on. In Mark, it, it immediately starts. I mean, like, like Ben said last week, it's ready, set, go. There's, there's no discussion of Jesus' past. In John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes straight to John the Baptist. So it shows you Jesus' uh, preexistence as God. And then it goes to John the Baptist for the forerunner of him. But here we get these detailed two chapters and they're long chapters, right? Like somebody says, hey, what chapter of the Bible should I memorize? Well, your choice is Psalm 117 or Luke 1, right? You want to go with Psalm 117, two verses. Luke 1, 80. 80 in Luke 1. And then 2, 52. All on the infancy and the early stages of Jesus's life, his humanity. And then you see Anna, the prophetess, the widow of Nain and the weeping woman in Luke 7, Mary and Martha, Luke 10, one of my favorite passages, and the women at the tomb. Not only do you see the humanity of Jesus, but he upheld women in ministry. I love Mary and Martha. It's the, it's the classic balance. Uh, and we're not denying Martha in her service. We see that in the book of John. But in this one, she was distracted by too many things. I would ask you, brothers and sisters, are you like Martha? Are you distracted by so many things? Because Mary has chosen the good meal, literally. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. He said, that's not going to be taken from you. Are you distracted by so many things? We live in America, and I'm, if there's fingers pointing out, there's, some pointing back at me, we can get distracted with so many things. Only a few things are necessary. And then the classic text, the road to Emmaus, you see the humanity of Jesus in those infancy narratives. You see the the equality that Jesus holds in those women in ministry. And then now you see the necessity. And here's where I want to camp for a few minutes at the end of the gospel of Luke. If you just go there, they all end similarly. How do they end in Matthew 28, 16? They're doubting. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And in Mark 16, eight, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they, had no, they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's how they ended for a while. There was fear, legitimate fear. We had followed this guy. And now he's risen from the, is this true? That's why Luke's saying, Theophilus, I know you've been taught this, but I want you to know for certain what has happened. And so he includes this story at the end of the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 13, called the road to Emmaus. And that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Can you just imagine the conversation? 
and he was picked up and, and like Judas betrayed him with a kiss. And then Peter, I mean, he, he chopped off a guy's ear, but it was really cool because Jesus took the ear and he put it back on. And, and then we all scattered and, and then they came and they, it was illegal, but they did all these trials and he's, oh, and it, but, but people are saying he's risen from the dead. And while they were talking to discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He went with them. Next verses. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Hmm. Were kept. Read the Bible slowly. Their eyes were kept. They weren't trying to keep their eyes from recognizing him, but their eyes were kept. See, their eyes were blind. They needed to have them open. More on that in a minute, starting in verse 17. Jesus shows up and he said to them, I love, this, this is going to be good. Like, will you replay this one? This is good. Did you see, his, he's got to have his hands in his pockets, right? Do they have pockets on robes? I don't know. You get that, right? Holds in the hand. Okay. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you two are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, I mean, this is, this is Jesus. They're talking. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? And he said to thing, this is Jesus. What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. There's the walk and the talk that we've learned about before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. Next verses. But we had hoped. What? But we had hoped. We had hoped, we had placed, they don't say this, but it's there. Luke wrote it for us to see it. But we had hoped. We had placed our hope in something other than what Jesus wanted them to place their hope. Oh, he was the one to redeem Israel. Don't, don't get me wrong. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as these women had said, but him they did not see. And so Peter and John, you remember that story? One of my favorite stories. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to ask. So, you know, who was faster, Peter or John? Just let them talk about it. Because John was, took pains to record. The one whom Jesus loved was speedy, kind of like Carly, you know, state record holder, 400 meters. That's John beats Peter. They went and found out. They came back and told him, but they didn't see this Jesus. Verse 25, key. And when he, and he said to them, now this is Jesus, hands in pockets. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things. All these things of you have been talking about. Did you miss it? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glories? Verse 27. And what did he do? What did Jesus do? Beginning with Moses... Right back here, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, right up through here, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We had hoped that the victory would come this way. No, you, you had hoped in something not biblical. So what did Jesus do? He taught them the Bible. 
He taught them the Bible for many days. They needed to know so that they could go with confidence. And so he walks them through the scriptures. Next slide, you see, perhaps he started with creation. He says, see this? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hey, John, why don't you write, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he may have talked about the fall, and, and then the nations, or the patriarchs, that he quoted in Luke sixteen thirty one. But if you'll just come back from the dead, I, I guarantee you, he'll be, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe someone rising from the dead. If they don't believe the word, they're not going to believe the miracle. And then he gave them probably walk through the law and how all the law pointed to Jesus. I may have, you know, Paul's probably not around. He's not around here. We know that. I may have this guy named Saul. He's going to have a radical conversion. And he's probably going to talk in Galatians about the law as a tutor to lead you to me. And then he talked about the land. And, you know, my name is Jesus. You remember Yeshua, how he conquered the land? Well, I conquered too. And it seemed impossible. And they did what they thought was foolish. And they're going to walk around the building. And people are probably making fun of them. But it, but it all happened. You remember that, right? That all points to me. And then the kingdom, the kingdom that is inaugurated, it's near you. And then the longings that you see in the prophets for the future kings. Perhaps he he went to Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. You remember, I don't know if you're somebody around, that was my first public sermon, Luke 4. And just to comfort pastors that would come, some loved me and wanted to hear more. Others hated me and wanted to be stoned. You give the message and and it's going to create two camps. They will either love the message or hate the message. Or maybe he said, do you remember? I don't know if you guys remember back. Some of you are there, but I know. You remember that soldier who was at the tomb and he professed the son of God? That. That's just from Zechariah 12.10. They will look upon me whom I've pierced. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one. And that's what the centurion did. That is the son of God. Or perhaps Isaiah 53, a classic Old Testament text. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for transgression? Oh, my people. I don't know where Philip was. Let's, I, perhaps he's there. Hey, why don't you one day, I'm just letting you know, there's going to be this eunuch, and he's going to be going to Jerusalem and he's going to wonder about this. Why don't you use that passage to lead him to Christ, Acts 8. See what he did? You see what Jesus did when, when, they, were, when they were definite, when they were timid and they did not know, they were afraid and unbelieving? He didn't perform another miracle. The, the best miracle that had ever been performed had already been done, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What did the resurrected Savior do? He taught him the Bible. They understood the word, but how? How did they understand the word? Look at Luke 24, 45. Remember those eyes that were kept from seeing him? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Beloved, if Jesus Christ doesn't open our mind, we can read this Bible all day long. That's why we must pray before we read the Bible, while we read the Bible, after we read the Bible. And so there's Luke, just a big sweep through Luke. Jesus actually lived. Jesus had activity on earth, and his aim was to go and take the sins of the world on his back to rise from the dead 
And a crucial thing he did post-resurrection is he taught the Scriptures. And that conclusion in Luke in the beginning of Acts is similar. You see this in Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book, that's Luke, O Theophilus, real person, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. To do and teach, he walked his talk. He, he did things and he taught things. That's how we should do. We should walk with Jesus and we should talk about Jesus. Until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. And I love this. After his suffering, they didn't understand the suffering by many proofs. How did he prove it? I am convinced he took them back to the scriptures. He didn't pull doves out of his pocket. Check that out. He's not a magician. He is a savior. And he wanted the world to see the message. Appearing to them 40 days and speaking. See there he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And then they had gathered together in six so when he had come together, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, at this time, because they're still asking questions, is this the time you'll restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons, right? We can, we can read the book and we should read the book. It is blessed are those who read the book of Revelation 1, Revelation. Read it. Do as best as you can to understand it. But we don't need charts to some degree and lined out, and this is when it's going to... We don't know the times or seasons. Don't be so fixed on the thing that the Father is fixed by his own authority. What should we concentrate on, verse 8? But you will receive power. And the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so in Acts one, Jesus goes up. Acts two, the spirit comes down. And Acts three, you just see this bold preaching and it doesn't stop. From that point on, you don't see a timid people. You see a bold people. What happened? What made them confident of a people who were definite? They understood the scriptures. They understood the promises. They understood the suffering. They understood the victory. And they went forward with what they knew, dependent upon God, empowered by the Spirit. So now, I, you've heard me say it a million times, but I think this video helps capture my heart behind. If I had one thing, the one thing that changed my life, Jesus Christ saved me by his grace. And in that salvation, the one thing that changed my life is I found out how to study the Bible. I want you to watch this video. That reality blows me away every time I stop to think about it. Pages and pages of God, his thoughts, his words, his heart, right there, just a few inches away. I can carry it with me everywhere I go, read it whenever I want. When we open the Bible, what do we see? We see God himself in this book. We meet him here or we don't meet him, not with any hope of friendship. Reading the Bible is one of the most important things we can ever do. It's more valuable than anything we own, sweeter than anything we have ever eaten. It is literally more important than breathing. That's not always what we see and feel when we open our Bible. Our weak, tired, distracted eyes look, and all we see is a lifeless, boring portrait on the wall. But it's not a portrait. It's a window. 
It doesn't hang lifeless in an old frame on the wall. It breaks through the wall into another world, the real world, the lasting world, the better world. And through this window shines a divine light that changes everything around us. We all know that the road to knowing God is not easy. Discipline and resolve are important, but they can carry you only so far. A few days, a week, maybe a month. For the long run, we need something stronger, more compelling than discipline and resolve. There are too many traps along the path, too many hurdles. At the root, the reason we don't read the Bible is that we don't want to read the Bible. We don't see joy, peace, and life when we see that leather binding on our shelf. We see a wall, not a window. The boring portrait, not the never-ending beauty beyond. So we put it off, leave it shut, and move on. We stay in bed, and we miss the miracle. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, loves to speak light into hearts and minds. God wrote a book, and with his book, these words in front of us, he wakens our dead, bored souls he frees us from bondage to sin, from desires that rob us of life. He comforts the depressed, inspires the discouraged, guides the confused. He empowers us to make our lives count for his cause in the world. He satisfies us completely and forever with words, his words. So, will I read my Bible tomorrow? Where else would I go? How else will I know Him? How else will I prepare myself to enjoy Him forever? Yes, I'll spend the rest of my life looking out of this window, watching, waiting for another sight of Him, another miracle another glimpse of my God. Inches away, more important than food. It's not easy, but in the long run, we need something stronger, that desire. My prayer would be that God would so move in every heart here, that the soul would be awakened, the sin would be freed, satisfaction would come complete, we would prepare to see him through the reading of his word. Because when we know, then we can go with confidence. We need to know a few things. If you're going to live on mission with God, we need to know and then go. Here's what we need to know. You need to know about yourself and your God how would God describe himself? There is one verse, two verses in scripture that I think are best. They're in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Early in your scriptures, the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousand, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is God's self-description. He is compassionate and merciful, and he is just. And you need to know not only yourself, right, that in Genesis 1 you were created in his image, as Romans 8 says you're recreated to be conformed to the image of God, you need to know his mission and his people. 
What a joy it was for me to sit and understand this week I was kind of ready, ready to be back in the pulpit. But what a joy was it for me to sit for three weeks to hear from Jim, to hear from uh, Brad, to hear from Ben, to hear from Jim. Who are you, John? Are you living a holy life? Who are you? I am God's child. I'm God's child. Know that I'm a saint and then live according. Set apart from the gospel. Jim said, assess. Assess your life. Where are you? And then adjust, that is, repent. If you assess your life and you say, you know what? I'm not living for God. No, I don't desire the Bible. Adjust. Repent. Confess. Grab somebody and say, man, my my faith is is waning. But I love what he said at the end, abide, rest in Jesus. Rest in Jesus' finished work as you work hard for Jesus. Or two weeks ago, Brad said, look, when it comes to Matthew, I've read this thing over and over to the three things that pop out and I couldn't have said it better myself. Repent, disciple, and go on mission. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Disciple, pass it on to the next generation and go on mission to the ends of the earth because Jesus is your instructor. He is your healer. He is your ruler. And then last week, I mean, not only did I learn a lot of new jays, but Ben did a wonderful job of presenting that ours is a faith of action, that we are called, we're compassionate, we're obedient, and we're humble, we're serving. And he used a video there, Francis Chan, that every time I see it, I, I told him, it. We, we had talked a little bit about his sermon. I said, man, I need to watch that once a week because I can be that balance beam guy. And just grab hold of that balance beam. Just me and Ashley and the three kids. And then the reach out and bring a meal to somebody. (laughs) Radical faith. (laughs) No, I need to get off the, as a pastor, I need to get off the balance beam. You can be praying for me. Here in a couple weeks, I'm going to go on radio with two friends who do not know the Lord. And we're going to talk about how, how the, how a Christian thinks about all the issues. And so before I go, I'm going to know Shrewdly, I've said, now what questions are you going to ask? I'm not going to get on them bombard me. But I'm going to know my answers, and I'm going to have a biblical answer. I'm going to go fearless, not because I'm fearless, but because I'm empowered by the Spirit. I'm going to know myself. I'm created in the image of God. I'm being recreated and conformed to the image of Christ. I want to know my God, and there's no better way no better way. I was listening to a sermon last night on Psalm 16. I'd never seen Psalm 16 opened up like that. I'm like, I'm going to listen to it and I'm going to pass it on. I'll put it in the weekly. It is phenomenal. If you're hurting and if you've lost somebody, if you've lost something, if you're in a down period, this Psalm will lift your spirits because it's God speaking to you. And then we've got to go. It does no good It does no good for us to go through books of the Bible, Philippians, Nehemiah, Mark, Jonah, 2 John, Genesis, 1 Thessalonians, James, Acts, a bunch of Psalms. It does no good if we just sit on it. It it does no good. I can have all the information in the world. This is what it takes to get fit. When was the last time you worked out? I I haven't. But I know, I know if I, if I eat right and I work it, then do it. And I'm, that's not saying that to you, it's just an illustration. Does no good. If we have all this information, and we don't go with the information. I am thankful for the people who have taught me uh, here over the last three weeks, right near me. I'm thankful to John MacArthur. I used to, when we were, courting, dating, whatever you want to call it. We can talk about that later. Every time I would drive to Sears, I st- young people, there are things called tapes. Stick it in the, and I would just listen over and over because he showed me, here's how you can walk through books of the Bible and learn. Thankful for Tom Nelson, who just showed me how to, not only just similar to MacArthur, but just showed me how to live life. I, if you ever look at my Bible and there's, there's credit card markings, straight, you should use straight lines in your scriptures. I'm just kidding. It's because he taught me. I watched him. 
Learn from Piper. Learn from Chan. Learn from Beg. I've learned from the, his people. I know things now that I didn't know 10 years ago. And I want to go. I want to go. How do you go? Four ways. Number one, by his grace. It's often said of the pastor who came walking up the steps back in the old days. They, they walked up the steps uh, to, the, to the pulpit. And this pastor came up and he was just kind of full of himself, delivered a horrible sermon, and he walked out and his head was down. And the senior pulled him aside and said, if you would have walked into the pulpit how you've walked out of the pulpit, you would have walked out of the pulpit how you walked into the pulpit. By his grace, we don't go from this building strapping up our boots and saying, we're going to go get them. We go dependent. God, help me. Spirit, give me the words to speak. We go for his glory. Oh, always question your motives. Why are you doing this? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing everything I do for the glory of God? With his gospel, we have to have a message to answer any question on any radio with logic without the word won't work. Plenty, plenty of people have tried that. We've got to have the message. We've got to have the scriptures because that's the only thing that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it lasts. It's true. It convicts. It comforts. First this, it performs its work in those who believe. So you go with the gospel. And we don't stop until we go across the globe. It's not enough to go to wheels and wings. It's not enough to go here. We're going until the gospel is preached throughout the entire world. And Jesus said, once that happens, I'll come again. And so let me wrap this up with several verses. On the front end, this is Luke, the son of man, the authenticity of Jesus. Fear not, Christian, fear not. Let, let's be the most confident, not cocky. Let's be the most just bold, not arrogant, but fear not, Christian. Why not? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's Luke 2. He was born that way. And look how it ends. After he teaches them the scriptures, after they understand, after Jesus opens their minds to see the scriptures and they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Are you a joyful Christian? Are you a joyful Christian? And they were continually in the temple blessing God. And we know we can go with compassion, confidence.